It's time to let another generation take the lead. I've given everything I have to this work. Soon it will be time for me to step aside and allow a new leader to take what I have accomplished and make it better. Take it further and adapt it to the opportunities and challenges that the future will bring. I intend to remain as the leader of the BC Greens until a new leader is elected, which I expect will occur in the early summer of next year, sometime after the spring legislative session. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, welcome to another podcast. That was the voice of Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC Green Party. And Rob, he announced this week he's not running again, not stepping down immediately as leader, right? So he's hanging around for a while, but not running again. It looks like we'll have a new leader of the Green Party next year. Hanging up the old skates on the top of his game, you know, he's an MVP, he's the all-star of the team, and he's going out on top. You don't see a lot of politicians leave in the position that Andrew Weaver is in right now, where he has incredible influence, he's the kingmaker, the deciding vote, props up the government. If he wants something from the premier, he can get him on the phone. He told us it, it was a decision he had made a few months ago, not related to a recent health scare that he had. Remember, we talked in the previous podcast about labyrinthitis, this nausea and vertigo that Weaver suddenly came down with. He said it wasn't related to that. He just felt like the timing of this was such that if he announces he's going to leave now, the Greens can have a leadership race in 2020. And conceivably, the new leader then has a year to 2021 to kind of get the party underneath him and figure out him or her, uh, figure out uh, what uh, they need to do before the next election. And if he waited any longer, the new leader would just be coming in right before the vote. So. I wonder if the health thing maybe was had a bit more to do with it than he would care to admit, because I know he had a pretty bad bout of that, that thing, right? Yeah. And he looked pretty good, I thought in the news conference this week where he was making his announcement, but I'd seen him a few times walking around the building here the last few weeks when he did not look that good. He was walking with a cane and looked somewhat unsteady. And I started thinking like, wow, yeah, he mentioned it could be a long recovery from this. Um, and it looks like he has recovered. He looked a lot better, I thought, the other day. But when I heard he was making an announcement, that was the first thing that went through my mind. I thought, is he stepping aside? Uh, primarily because of the health concerns. Yeah, he's also, you know, uh, been quite upfront about thinking politicians should have term limits. Yes. You know, Andrew Weaver has raised the idea that he doesn't like career politicians. He thinks, no. especially on the liberal side, but also on the NDP side, some people have been here too long, they're stale. Uh, and he never wanted to be that guy. So I guess, you know, he always had a bit of a shelf life on him that was a lot shorter than the other politicians here. He'll leave quite a legacy, you know. I mean, he's the most successful green politician in Canada, that's for sure. He not only dethroned a liberal cabinet minister in the 2013 election, stunned Ida Chong and Oak Bay Gordon Head, but uh, then kept the party momentum going and ended up with three uh, MLAs, including himself, in the 2017 election, as you put it, Smitty, he was like lightning uh, struck in a bottle there where he just happened to have the right number of votes to decide to bring down uh, topple Premier yeah, Christy Clark. Yeah, when you think about the odds, he had to hit that little sweet spot, right? When you've only got two, no, three MLAs, you know, there's not much margin for error there to hold the balance of power when all you got is three people. So he, it really did align, the stars aligned for him for sure. And he managed to form a, a so-called bromance with uh, John Horgan. <laughs> These are two guys who hated each other prior to the 2017 election and during the election. John Horgan used to, I remember talking to him about Andrew Weaver, you know, heading into that election. He's like, I don't really care what Andrew Weaver does at all. Like, who cares about that guy? And the NDP, it's a 
attacked the Greens just mercilessly in the election, and the Greens viewed the NDP as this tired old bunch of union fuddy-duddies, and they managed to put that behind them and form uh, an actual friendship. The Weaver said he thinks he and Horgan are, are much more similar than uh, than uh, people might believe. A bromance of convenience, perhaps? I mean, they were fighting over the same sort of political turf and the same type of sort of center-left voters, I guess you yeah. could say, or environmentally-leaning voters for sure. So, yeah, a really kind of bitter fight for that kind of turf before the election. But once the stars aligned, as we mentioned earlier, then it's kind of like, oh, now we're all buddies. We're pals, right? But well, then, I think it did turn into a genuine friendship. Although in the next election, they're like two guys uh, doing one of those guy hugs with one hand, <laughs> but the other hand has a knife in their hands. Because in the next election, they would have had to duke it out again. The Horgan would be trying to wipe the Greens off the map. And Weaver would be trying to steal some more NDP seats, and it would be um, ad- adversarial again, I guess. But anyways, uh, he will be missed by the media. He's a big, a big um, gregarious quote machine. Yeah, he he is. He uh, he's a really colorful ca- kind of character, and kind of an anti-politician in some ways. Very ready with a clip or a quote. Very available, pretty much at any time to talk about anything. So. In a lot of ways, I think he'll he'll be missed. He did kind of trick the media a little bit with this announcement, though, because he did tell some reporters that he wasn't resigning, and then he did. And I and I know two reporters specifically that he told directly when when the announcement came out, he was making some big announcement, and he he told he told at least two reporters that I know of directly it had it, he wasn't resigning, and then he did resign, which I thought was a little sneaky. You know, he's, he's usually not that way. He's usually pretty straight with you. If you ask him a question, he'll give you a pretty straight answer. In that occasion, he didn't. Yeah, he is. A, he whatever. Is, you know, I mean, that's kind of inside baseball stuff, but that's what happened. He is an interesting character, though. You know, like here's a guy who was part of a Nobel Prize winning team yeah. uh, 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 many years ago before he got into politics. Major climate scientist, kind of like the rock star of the Canadian climate science world, if you can view a rock star in that particular field. Uh, gets recruited into politics just because he's kind of called out by one of his own students. And he keeps telling his students, you know, get involved. You're the next generation. Make a difference. Get into politics if you, you want to ch- make a change. And one of the students said, well, why don't you do that? Next thing you know, he finds himself running provincially uh, for the Greens. He's not even leader of the party, and he manages to win them a seat, and then he becomes the leader. Uh, a guy who, in addition to being a climate scientist, loves paintball. Loves to go crashing around <laughs> in the woods with a big mask on playing paintball. I have played paintball against yeah, him. Yeah, I remember that. It's like, you know, like he's a, he is a ghost, a bear ghost in the forest, just lumbering through, very quiet, sneaks up behind you, shoots you in the head. Wow. Also a guy who, and uh, this is for fun, right? For fun, yeah. It's fun, okay. He, he loves, just checking. He loves collecting hockey cards. He's got an really? incredible hockey card collection. He, uh, is known for his naps in the, his legislator office. He has a couch and he naps face down. And he has a nice collection of Hawaiian shirts. And big Hawaiian shirts. Very so, wrinkled, rumpled ones. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, people saw that kind of character side of him and he became one of the most prominent, uh, provincial politicians in BC. Yeah. So I'm not sure he'll be easily replaced. I'm not sure they'll get a better leader than him. No. Be tough to. That was, uh, one story this week. Yep. Another story. In part, what, 572 of our ongoing series into the legislature spending scandal. Smitty, why don't you pick this up? We have another report uh, into Sergeant-at-Arms Gary Lentz, this time under the Police Act. What is going on here on that? If you go back to the beginning, remember that there were two guys who were marched out of the legislature under police escort last year. Craig James, the clerk of the House, Gary Lentz, the Sergeant-at-Arms, the top two unelected officials in the place. We then had a report from Daryl Plekis, the speaker, outlining this astonishing, lavish spending on uh, 
designer clothes, globetrotting travel, gifts, luggage, the famous wood splitter that was delivered to Craig James's house, the pension enhancement for, for James. Everyone was shocked. That led to a subsequent investigation by Beverly McLaughlin, the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. Apparently, the Secretary General of the UN was not available, so they brought in the former head of the Supreme Court of the whole country to look into it. She found that Lenz had indeed committed misconduct. He resigned. James. Or he retired. I beg your pardon. Yeah, let's get this straight. She found that James committed misconduct, and he retired, right? Right. She determined that Lenz, however, had not committed misconduct, basically cleared him. He held a news conference where he declared, you know, that he'd been vindicated and he wanted his job back because these guys had been on had been on leave at that time. The speaker, Daryl Plekis, was not happy with that Beverly McLaughlin report. In his mind, he felt that Gary Lenz had committed misconduct. And he ordered another investigation. So he brought in a guy named Doug Lepard, who is the former deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department, also the transit police chief in Vancouver as well, who did a new investigation of Gary Lenz and found that he did commit misconduct. And a lot of the report that came out this week focused very largely on an incident in 2013 where a bunch of liquor was removed from the legislature building, loaded up into a truck belonging to Craig James, who then, he says, drove it to Penticton and sold it to Bill Beresoff, the former liberal-appointed Speaker of the House, for $370. And it was $8,000 of booze-ish that was loaded into that's the what truck. They, that's what they say. So, in fact, there is a there is a canceled check somewhere in the, in the archives here for $370. <laughs> paid by Bill Beresoff for this this liquor, and I bet you that's top shelf booze. I mean, the legislature doesn't. Hey, they skip don't on drink. It. They don't drink cheap stuff around here, there's right? No, they don't no, drink plonk, you know. No moonshine in there. That's no. some crystal. I no, think. yeah. So all very curious. And um, the the tone of this report that came out this week it was that Gary Lenz and his involvement with this uh, liquor matter had had not been honest and straightforward and had not told the truth about the whole thing to Beverly McLaughlin uh, when she did her report. Now, the this report was shown to Gary Lenz, I'm told, a few weeks ago. And last week he resigned. Or he re- did he say he resigned or did he retire? They're both basically the same. I think he resigned. And he put out a statement saying that he's very proud of his tenure here. He's sick and tired of trying to... He, he can't come back here and work anymore, but he basically declared his innocence again. But then we get this new report that says, that accused him of um, misconduct. So that's the latest on it, Rob. So and to, the, um, the, there's still a police investigation still going on. Just to drill down a little bit more into that as well. He's not accused of taking the alcohol. He's not accused of profiting. He's not accused of actually being involved in, you know, running off with a bunch of Johnny Walker Black Label uh, whiskeys. What he is actually accused of in this report is that he told, Gary Lenz told the speaker and the speaker's chief of staff, Alan Mullen, that he thought Clerk Craig James was stealing the liquor. Right. And then he told Beverly McLaughlin in the report that he thought Craig James was returning the liquor. Right. That is the misconduct that's found here. It's not, it's easy when we're talking about so many details of misspending to think that what's been found is that 
some of his misspending was misconduct. That's not what's been found. It is two specific things. One, he lied to Beverly McLaughlin because he told Daryl Plekis, Alan Mullen, and some other people that he thought it was a theft, and he told Beverly McLaughlin he thought Craig James was returning it to the liquor store. And because of that, there's a second uh, you know, finding here that if he knew it was a theft, he had an obligation as a special constable to invest to investigate it, and he right. didn't do that. So right. he was he was dereliction neg- of duty, negligent in his duty. Those are the allegations, and 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 those are, are what's in this report. It's tough because the headlines you're going to read on this are Gary Lenz lies in spe- legislature spending scandal, and you think, well, crap, you know, man, he's got to like you know all the all that it was international trips and the orange juice and the in the wood splitter. That's not what this is about. It was a very narrow focused part of the whole saga with his booze, right? But it is a finding. Yeah. And he retires, resigns before this comes out, and then he can't be disciplined because of it. And then we're not entirely sure what the discipline would be because the report doesn't recommend that. The report had some sort of wide-ranging parameters for potential remedies here that included some, perhaps a reprimand or even firing him. But now he's he's quit. So you can't really fire a guy who's already quit. If you go back a year... To when we started talking about this, the bombshell yeah. Daryl Plekis report, the report that's going to make you puke. Right. You're going to lose your lunch over this report. He does not allege in the report anywhere that Gary Lenz did anything wrong on the alcohol. He says Craig James took off with this alcohol, the clerk of the house. And what happened to it? Where did it go? Did he take it? Did he take it to Beresoff? Why did he take it? Who's, you know, that, how much was it? And, and so it starts there. And then the McLaughlin report comes out. And uh, amongst the many things, the many attention grabbing things about, uh, you know, travel and trips to Seattle Mariners games, all of that stuff. She says, look, there aren't any rules in how people are spending money at the legislatures. There's no expense policies in alcohol or anything. They're not written down. So we can't find misconduct in most of these allegations because it's, uh, it's, there's no rules here. She did find, that Craig James basically cooked himself a pretty sweet retirement package with a bunch of benefits he shouldn't have had, payouts, uh, extra things Maybe like that's that. the most egregious part of the whole thing. That that's hundreds of, of thousands of dollars, yeah, yeah. yeah. But she cleared pretty much all the other allegations on there. Now, she has a section on the liquor. Yeah. Uh, and she also says that Craig James, you know, was employee misconduct of some type for wandering off with this liquor. But it's that part where Gary Lenz says to her... I thought Craig was returning it. I thought the CEO of the legislature who makes $300,000 a year had loaded up his truck and was taking it back to the liquor store to return this liquor. That was his testimony to Beverly McLaughlin. And what Alan Mullen and the speaker and this report say is that, no, in fact, he had been saying privately to legislature officials that he thought it was a theft. Right. So he originally said he originally told people he thought it was a theft. Then he told McLaughlin that he didn't think it was a theft. And that, according to the report, is and a lie. Denied, and apparently denied that he ever said it was a theft. Right. But there are other witnesses who say that he did say that. Right. And the double irony in this is that the only reason that the speaker knew about this alcohol theft is that Gary Lenz came into his office one day and said, you know, on it. you know what? We got to get rid of this Craig James guy. And let me tell you a story about Craig James stealing a bunch of alcohol. And he tells the speaker this story, and the speaker says, that's great. So Lenz leaves the office thinking that he's double-crossed Craig James. And the moment he leaves the speaker's office, the speaker and his chief of staff double-cross Gary Lenz and say, I can't, I can't believe, I can't believe he didn't investigate that. And so there's many 
in in many ways, you know, according to this report, Gary Lenz is the architect of his own demise yeah. in the way that he tried to play whistleblower kind on tried to play both sides of it, both kinda? sides, yeah. and it ended up allegedly just kind of lying to everyone in a weird sort of way, and that is the. That is uh, the finding it's of that a, report. It's a very tangled web, to be sure, and a lot of people are kind of stuck in it. And to be fair to Gary Lenz, he did put out a statement this week denying that he had committed any wrongdoing, again, insisting that he had done nothing wrong. In our system, you are innocent until proven guilty, and they have not been charged with any crimes. Now, it ain't over because, as you know with this story, it ain't never over. So there is still a police investigation going on. There are two special prosecutors in place, and we haven't heard the end of it. I mean, that's the big card that is still yet to be played, is if there will be any criminal charges in this uh, saga. I'm thinking, Smitty, we got to make sure the archives of our podcast are in good shape because we're going to need to pass them to our grandkids so that they can carry on our reporting on this and explain it to the public because this is never going to end. One more thing on it. Remember that Daryl Plekis took a lot of criticism for the way that he has handled this whole thing, including criticism from Beverly McLaughlin. The way that I'm pretty certain that they will structure this or phrase it or characterize it is that they've been vindicated again, right? That he pointed the finger at this fellow Gary Lenz. They brought in the former chief justice of the whole country, couldn't lay a glove on this guy, but the speaker got him again, right? with his chief of staff, that's the way they'll frame it. Because there's a lot of kind of public relations effort going on here because what I think what Plekis wants to be seen as is a guy who came in here, very unusual methods that he's gone that he's gone about this whole thing, a bull in the China shop, as they've called him, but that he is the only guy who was able to get in here, turn this place upside down, and get some results. And in this case, you had a guy... Gary Lenz, the former sergeant at arms, uh, who had been cleared by the former chief justice of the Supreme Court, turned around and said, I've been cleared. I want my job back. Plekis orders another report, and then the guy resigns instead. Now he doesn't want his job back. He quits instead. Plekis will turn around and say, this is what I'm talking about. This is, this is how I'm talking about how I've, I've cleaned, I'm cleaning this place up. Except he's still cleared. If we go back to the very beginning of this thing and look at the original Plekis report, the vast majority of what's in that report has never been substantiated in follow-up reports or, or as of yet, criminal charges. We're talking about all these expenses, all of this sort of stuff. It's a very small subset that's, that has been substantiated, including this way down the rabbit hole lie from, from Gary Lenz, which is not related to the suits or the corruption or the criminal wrongdoing that Plekis alleged at the beginning. You know, we're way down on a very specific subset. If you go back to the beginning and look at the totality of what was alleged, I'm not sure we're there yet. In fact, most of what was alleged at the beginning hasn't been found yet. So we're still kind of waiting for that police report. Well, this is why I think that the police investigation is the critical piece that we're still waiting on. And, you know, you made a point earlier this week because we're going to talk in a second here about another special prosecutor that's been appointed in this place this week, and that's looking into Ginny Sims former NDP cabinet minister. And you pointed out in a question to John Horgan this week, what about the special prosecutor system that we got? Because these things can literally drag on for years. And we're now into 
Uh, we've been talking about this thing for a year now, yep. and who who knows if we'll be talking about it next year at this time, or the next or the year after that, yeah. because these things will go on for a long, long, long time. And I don't know. I, sometimes I think like there's got to be a better way. Hopefully, we'll get a report from the special prosecutors or the crown or the police here soon that will say. Here's here's what we found. We finished our investigation, and here's the result of it. And I think the public will be grateful for that. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a good transition because you know the commonality between that uh, and what we're going to talk about next is the special prosecutor system. And maybe just a quick refresh on what that is. Almost thirty years ago now, there were some changes to BC system because of this public sentiment that we don't want politicians to have any thumb on the scale of justice when it comes to allegations of criminal wrongdoing involving them, MLAs, cabinet ministers, their family members, anyone who has political influence. And the reason why is because our system in British Columbia, the people who lay charges are not the police, they are crown prosecutors. And those people are government employees who work for the attorney general's ministry and the attorney general is a politician. And there's a whole bunch of you know, political types around them. And so we created this special prosecutor system to say, look, maybe there's a perception of conflict when the attorney general is involved and all the premier's office staff. We don't want them to be able to influence who gets charged or whether they get charged. So when someone in politics is accused of a crime and is under police investigation or even just under police investigation and not actually accused of anything yet, it needs to be overseen by an independent lawyer who's a private lawyer, who doesn't have any skin in the game, who is outside of government and can't be interfered with in any way. Right. That's our special prosecutor system. It's been in place for almost 30 years. The, the challenge that we have with the system is it takes forever. It takes, it takes forever. And private lawyers feel no, for good or bad, feel no public pressure to explain to the public where they're at in these investigations. So if you look at the history of the system, um, there was an investigation into John Less, who was a liberal solicitor general accused yeah. of, of some wrongdoing when he was a mayor, under special prosecutor investigation for two years, didn't lay a charge on him in the end. His career was over. He never made it back into cabinet. He complained very publicly about how long it took to clear him. Cash Heed, the former solicitor general of BC, was under, poli- was under a special prosecutor investigation, resigned his seat, cleared, came back into cabinet, discovered that the special prosecutor's law firm had donated to Kashid's campaign. He had to quit again, and then he was cleared again, but he never made it back into cabinet because then a couple years later, your reputation is burned to the ground. The quick win scandal in British Columbia, the idea that Premier Christy Clark's government was using taxpayer resources to get votes in ethnic communities, five-year police investigation under a special prosecutor, and the end... Basically, there's one tiny breach of trust charge against the communications director, and that's it. Now we're a year into the legislature scandal. It just takes forever. And one of the arguments that's out there right now is maybe the process is worse than the punishment at the end because most of the time people don't get charged, but their careers are over. And in politics, in the vacuum of any information about what someone is accused of under the special prosecutor system, your enemies jump into the void and they call you corrupt, a criminal. They call you all sorts of names. They accuse you and your colleagues and your government of fraud and all sorts of horrible behaviors. And the public is left sitting there for years going, I don't know what's going on. A special There's almost prosecutor. a perception of guilt, too. Yeah, I mean, for a guy like, you know, 
John Less or Cash Heat or these guys, even if they're cleared or they're not charged at the end at the end of the day, their their careers are over. Yeah, because like you said, that idea that well, you must have done something, yeah. or else there wouldn't be a special prosecutor investigating yeah. you, even if you're cleared at the end. Yeah, and your career is just on fire. I think it's an excellent overview you just gave, and um, certainly there's. I think you did a really good job of sort of pointing out the problems of it. I'm not sure if there's a better way to do it because no, I, structurally, I don't think there is. Because that's the thing. Because I think that in principle, it's it's a good idea. So like, for example, if we can segue to the Ginny Sims situation, right? Mm-hmm. So Ginny Sims, former NDP cabinet minister, she was minister of citizen, Commun- service. citizen services. She resigned from cabinet on Friday. And that happened after David Eby, the attorney general, received an email from the prosecution branch, or was it from his deputies, assistant deputy minister? His ADM, yeah. And informing him that a special prosecutor had been appointed as part of a criminal investigation into Ginny Sims. He had no idea. Which is the right way. That's the way it's supposed to work. He had no idea there was a criminal investigation of Ginny Sims. He didn't know there had been a special prosecutor appointed, even though it's happening in his own ministry. That's because of this hermetically sealed kind of, you, you insulate the guy from any pol- political involvement or appearance of involvement. So that's the way it works. And I think that's actually a good thing. And then when he got that email, he told John Horgan, the premier, and then Ginny Sims was removed, or resigned from cabinet. And now there's an investigation going on into her. Now, how long is that going to take? You know, is this well, going to end her career? What is it even about is the first question. Yeah. And one of the flaws or benefits of our system, I don't know. If you're a lawyer, you argue this both ways. We don't know the allegations against her because she hasn't been charged. And our system is supposed to prevent me from saying, hey, Mike, you know, um, we're investigating you for beating up a little old lady on a bus. And once people get that in their mind, they, they visualize you doing it and, it and it it kind of ruins your character anyway. So the allegations aren't ever known publicly until you or if you are charged. But in politics, when you're in the void for years – People just figure out the allegations anyways, and sometimes they're even worse because your enemies conflate them and make them sound worse. So what is Ginny Sims accused of? We're all left guessing. We don't really know for sure. We even have, she says she doesn't know. That's right. We have hints. We think that it is related to documents that the liberal opposition sent to the RCMP several months ago that accuse Ginny Sims based on testimony from a former employee in Ginny Sims's constituency office of doing things like endorsing several Pakistani citizens for a visit to Canada, some of whom ended up allegedly on a security watch list. They were seeking the visas, States. visas to enter Canada. Visas and to enter she Canada. Wrote, she wrote some letters saying like, you know, endorsing. These are good people. Yeah. yeah, let them in. Right. There's also an accusation floating around by this whistleblower that some of them may or may not have been wanting to donate to her uh, campaign in exchange for these letters. And I'm sure that 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 is part of... If this is about that, I'm sure the police would be looking at that. Unless it's something totally Unless different. it's something else. We, we don't know, right? right? All we know is what we know, and we don't know what we don't know. And that's the <laughs> that's the weird part of the system. So we're all writing stories now about Ginny Sims, these visa application letters, as if that's what it's about. We think it is because the liberals sent this to the police four months ago, and now there's an investigation. But I don't know if it's a benefit or a hindrance to the public's understanding of this to not know from the beginning what we're doing. But the liberals, of course, will go after it now and, and going after aggressively after Ginny Sims and going after the government the way they've handled this, including whether evidence was preserved in this, right? And we had a blow up in the legislature this week about what steps have you taken to preserve evidence 
And one of the questions that the Liberals asked David Eby, the Attorney General, was, have you taken away your cell phone? Have you taken away your laptop computer? I thought that was an interesting question. So I went up to Ginny Sims in the hallway. And to her credit, she's she'll talk to the media. Yeah, She'll stand in the pocket and answer any questions you want. I think it helps that she doesn't know anything. So but That's all she keeps saying. I don't know what it's about, but she'll stand there and say that. She's not running away anyway. So what'd she tell you about Anyway, she, she says, I go, what's going on with your uh, cell phone and your uh, laptop? And she said, well, I've got my cell phone right here with me. And she had an iPad as well. It was a ministerial issue iPad. And I said, oh, how come you, how come you still have these? She goes, well, I have to turn them in. And I asked her, well, how come you have to turn them in? She goes, well, I'm not a minister anymore, so I have to turn them in. I go, who are you going to turn them into? She goes, I don't know. <laughs> and then later, um, the government told me that they had seized these items. So they, they've got her cell phone and her laptop and her iPad. And that happened on Monday. Why did she have these these this equipment with her for three days after she knew she was under criminal investigation? The government also says it locked her out on the Friday that, that tried to remo- revoke her. Well, passwords. that's weird, too. Like they said, OK, well, yeah, yeah, she had this stuff, but she couldn't use them anyway because, you know, we changed her passwords and stuff on Friday. So she couldn't get into her government email. And EB strangely also said in the house that she couldn't get into her ministerial calendar, couldn't use her calendar. She told me she did check her calendar on the phone. So I'm not sure if that adds up. And then I was told that they locked her out of her iPad which is another ministerial device that potentially has evidence, who knows. They locked her out of that on Saturday, so like the next day instead of Friday. So I think that was handled kind of sloppily. They, I think like as soon as someone is resigns from cabinet, especially if they're under criminal investigation by the cops, I think they should immediately take away your phone and your laptop and your iPad. I think that should have been done immediately on Friday. Yeah. And they didn't do it. Although, if the allegations are about what we just said they're about, they date back more than a year. So, conceivably, that evidence is somewhere else. We're like seven layers of speculation down the speculation hole now. But you're right. It is it is kind of weird. The liberals have made a lot of hay out of that. It's been a question period topic. Ginny Sims is just uh, getting eviscerated every day in the House. And the NDP is in the awkward position that the liberals used to be in where they have to stand up and say, we can't talk about this This is before the courts, which is the most guilty sounding response you could ever come up with in the House. But well, didn't the liberals perfect that one? Stonewall Opal? Wally Opal, the attorney general, used to say that and they called him Stonewall. They nicknamed him Stonewall. And now that's all he used to do is Stonewall. Now we got David Eby up doing that. But what's his nickname? Stone Eby doesn't work. So we're going to have to come up with a different one. But it's funny how all the roles change, but the answers are still the same. The words are the same, but it's just the politician who's saying them that changes. So uh, we'll keep an eye on the Ginny Sims thing. Um, One other thing, Smitty, uh, another persistent theme we've talked about is ICBC. You wrote uh, an interesting column on the weekend about a young lady who has seen an astronomical, skyrocketing, humongous jump or, or basically first bill on auto insurance, which is enough to make your eyes water. And uh, how these kind of changes that we have we've speculated on for many months in this podcast that people were going to be really surprised and ticked off when they realized ICBC changed how they define your risk rating, whether you're a dangerous driver or a risk to crash and your insurance rates go way up because of that. What's the story of this young lady? Her name is Isabella Bryant. And I was first got in touch with her dad, John Bryant, and he was freaking out about her ICBC bill because she had just got her first car. So she saved up to buy 
a 2013 uh, Nissan Altima. And Ooh, street racer is that is that a street racer? No, it's no, not. no. It's just a normal car, it's like a ten thousand buck used car, right? And I, I ended up interviewing her too. Now she's a very busy young person. She's got two jobs. She's going to college full time. She plays soccer, so she has soccer games, soccer practices, jobs, school. So she needed a car. So this is why she bought a car to get around. And she told me, she goes, well, I knew it was going to be pricey for the insurance, and she was thinking maybe it'd be two or three thousand dollars. She said it was $5,300, and she was shocked by that, and she was just stunned. Like, this is half the price of the car, and how am I going to pay this? Her, her dad was very upset, too. Now, here's an interesting thing. I've, I went to ICBC, and I said, can you give me an explanation for why this is so high? And ICBC said to me, we, will, we refuse to comment unless you get her to sign a disclosure agreement waiving her personal privacy rights. And if you do that, then we'll comment for you. And I thought that was interesting because they'd never said that to me before because I'd asked them questions about other things before they cited privacy. But this time they wanted her to sign a form. And so I said, oh, that's interesting. Okay. So I went back to her and I said, will you sign this form? And she said, yes, absolutely. I'll sign the form. I want to know as much. I want to know all about this. So she signed this form and so did her dad. And I thought for a second, like, maybe ICBC knows something about this case that they want to get out there. Like, maybe she racked up some distracted driving tickets or something. And that's why they're kind of anxious to tell the public about this. So I was was expecting maybe something like that might happen. So I gave them the signed form. And then to my surprise, they turned around and said, yes, yes, her... Her bill is $5,300. She has she has a clean driving record. She has no tickets. She has no accidents. She's got nothing. But the reason it's so high is that she's a, she's a young driver and they're more likely to get in an accident. And that's why her rate is high. But here's, here's an interesting thing, though. She said she renewed under the old rate system. So she actually got a bargain. She's actually <laughs> lucky because under this new rate model they have in place... If she went and got her insurance today, it would be $6,400, $1,100 more. And I was like, oh, wow. And so then I told, she didn't know that. So I told her and her dad that. And I go, guess what? You actually got a deal. You should be happy you're paying 5300 bucks because you got in under the wire. If you had, if you had gone today to get the same policy, it would cost you sixty four hundred, and they were like shocked. They were like, "What? Oh my god!" And then I started hearing from other people about this. Similar cases, largely young people, right? Five thousand dollars, six thousand dollars to insure a car, no accidents, clean record. But because you're young, that's what they're going to charge you now. And ICBC says, "Look, these people are riskier drivers. They got to pay more." Period. That's what, like four, five hundred bucks a month on your insurance? Yeah. How does any young person afford to pay that? My son's 17. He told me, Dad, I want to get my driver's license. I was like, no, 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 no I can't afford it. Please don't. Where am I going to get this Wait money? till I've retired. And then you get, <laughs> I mean, so basic, you know, like this is, this is ICBC's, you know, actuaries. Yeah. This is supposed to be a revenue neutral change. They're not bringing in any more money. They're trying to redistribute insurance premiums out there so that people who are riskier pay more and conceivably right. if you're less risky 
You, you pay, pay less. less. We don't hear a lot of stories from people who are paying less. I've heard a few. I've heard some people said to me, oh, my, I went to renew my ICBC and it went down, uh, you know, 50 bucks or it went down 100 bucks. I've heard a few stories like that. You know, there seem to be more people paying a heck of a lot more, though. But yeah. according to ICBC and the government, though, this is all revenue neutral. It's like the the riskier drivers are going up and the less risky drivers are going down and they're not making any money off of it. So I actually had some NDP an NDP insider say to me the other day, go, oh, my God, this story is killing us. We're getting slaughtered on this thing, and we're not even making any money off of it. You know? And I had a conversation with Attorney General David Eby. I sat down with him this week, and I said, so what are you going to do about this? Are you going to fix this rate uh, review? Are you going to go in there and change the rules? He's like, nope, nope, <laughs> nope, we're not going to do that. Um, he, he knows full well that he's about to get hammered for the rest of this legislative session with stories like yours of young people who are just getting astronomical rates. But he he and the government appear to have decided we need to make the rate system fair. There's no way around young people getting huge bills. And his long-term goal, which is not going to be coming for years, is to have these little telematics um, yeah. uh, devices in people's cars. So they're basically little pieces of hardware that measure how fast you accelerate, how strongly you brake, what kind of turning you do, basically to determine whether you're an aggressive driver or a safe driver. And how often you drive too. And yeah, you know. and then, and then charge your insurance based on your risk level, based on your actual driving data. That is, there's only what, two, 2,400 people on that system right now. They're testing it. They're testing it. It's going to take years to roll out. And even then, who knows? So they've got it in other provinces. Yeah. In the short term though, he said, I don't see a way around inexperienced drivers getting large bills. And, Okay, I mean, uh, fair enough, but man, that's going to be a political nightmare for the new Democrats. Well, you know, and this is the way the government's trying to spin it because they're saying like, well, look in other provinces because now the private insurance companies are saying, oh, this is because it's a government monopoly. If you allow uh, private sector competition and auto insurance, you'd have cheaper rates. And the government is saying, no, 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 you actually pay more. Like if you think this is bad, if you had private insurance like they got in other provinces, you'd pay even more. And David Eby said, we had a case of a, a similar person, young person, Scarborough, Ontario, uh, $12,000 to insure a car there. Same thing, young person. Now, when you talk to the Insurance Bureau of Canada, which represents the private insurance companies, they just say, that's a joke. They, they say, well, I'm not going to doubt David Eby that maybe they did find one insurance company that quoted them 12000 bucks." But they say you could shop around and get cheaper than that. And they say that in Alberta, you could find a, a, a rate for a similar policy like this young woman got for 3000 bucks. Yeah. So, you know. Re- remember what we're – when we talk about – are you auto- supposed to believe on this stuff, you know? When we're talking about auto insurance, we're talking about two things. The basic premium and then the optional premium, right? And so the one of the government's arguments here is that the basic premium hasn't really gone up that much. That Yeah, it's gone up a little bit, but it's the optional side that where ICBC competes with private insurers. That's gone way up for some people based on, you know, do you want 1 million comprehensive coverage or 3 million? What do you want your deductible to be? There's a bunch of things you can pick and choose on your optional side. So one of the government's arguments is if you, yeah, if you stack up on the optional, then you're going to pay a lot more. Uh, it, it depends on your situation. There's an online tool that you can go to with ICBC and plug in your data. And we didn't even talk about this, but another big factor will be um, if you're listing other people on your vehicle who may be driving and they may have worse record than you. And suddenly your premium is going to go up because their name is attached to your vehicle as well. So it's a big, complicated issue that will be distilled down to a very simple 
series of political attacks by the liberals. The, liberal, that, the liberals love this story. Oh, and it'll go on for quite a while. It will because, you know, every day people are getting ICBC renewal notices in the mail. So it's like staggered through the year, through the through the year, right? So I had one liberal guy say to me in the hallway today, "Oh, this is great because you know every day there's going to be people getting these yeah. rate shocks, these sticker shocks, and they open their ICBC bill. So Although, this is this is great for the liberals. I mean, keep in mind with the liberals that if they had not milked the golden cow of ICBC, as we used to call it, if they had not siphoned away all of ICBC's profits from the excess optional capital side for years, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in profits. Billion bucks. The liberals took from ICBC during the good years yeah. for the budget. Yeah. And had ICBC been allowed to keep that, they conceivably could have maybe lowered the rates, put aside some money for these difficult times that they're in. They certainly wouldn't have lost more than $2.5 billion the last two years when ICBC really hit some troubling times. They would have only lost $1.5 billion. So it's kind of one of those (laughs) situations where the liberals are going to make hay out of it, but they really do have a long legacy of milking ICBC and interfering with it and monkeying around with it. Their hands are not clean on this either. And now they want to walk away and say, it was the private companies coming here because they messed up ICBC so badly that that it's on fire, essentially. So... Keep all of that in mind when you when you kind of uh, deal with this debate. And uh, God, we're going to talk about it. And if you, if you have someone in your family gets a six thousand dollar ICBC bill, send me an email. <laughs> That's right. At at what M Smith M Smith M S M Y T H at postmedia dot com. And if you want to see the story I did in this young woman who got the five thousand dollar bill, which should be a six thousand dollar bill, she was actually lucky. Uh, check that out online. Make yeah. make our editors happy. Because there's there's an awesome uh, video on there ever too where she does an interview about it. And subscribe to the old podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, uh, all your other podcast devices. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week to chat with you about BC politics. See you then.